You know, there are some perks to being the pastor. Not, not a lot, but some. One of them is when your mother is coming to town, you can pick one of her favorite hymns to sing in church. We continue in our study of the book of Samuel today. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 4, starting with verse 12. Let me catch us up where we are and what is going on. We have seen a nation in crisis. We have seen the roots of that crisis, the iniquity of those who are called to be the leaders, who have been chosen by God to be the leaders, in particular the iniquity of the two sons of the priest. The priest Eli, his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. What we saw last week was a nation go out to war against the Philistines and in the face of defeat, turn God into a talisman to carry before them in battle. The ark, the the very seat of God's presence among God's people, they carry before them into battle with the Philistines and are decimated. 30,000 are killed. And the ark is taken. And it is in the immediate aftermath of that battle that we pick up. So again, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 4, starting with verse 12. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? That same day, a Benjaminite man ran from the battle and came to Shiloh. His clothes were torn and there was dirt on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair beside the road watching because he was anxious about the ark of God. When the man entered the city to give a report, the entire city cried out. Eli heard the outcry and asked why this commotion. The man quickly came and reported to Eli. At that time, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes did not move because he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle. I fled from there today. What happened, my son? Eli asked. The messenger answered, Israel has fled from the Philistines. And also, there was a great slaughter among the people. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are both dead. And the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off the chair by the city gate. And since he was old and heavy, his neck broke and he died. Eli had judged Israel 40 years. Eli's daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and about to give birth. When she heard the news about the capture of God's ark and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband, she collapsed and gave birth because her labor pains came on her. As she was dying, the women taking care of her said, Do not be afraid, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, referring to the capture of the ark of God and to the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. The glory has departed from Israel, she said, because the ark of God has been captured. This is the Word of God. Read it believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear precious God, as we come 
today to open your word and to study it together. I pray that in this recounting of the aftermath of a battle that happened thousands of years ago, that we, we would see you at work, not only then, but now. That we would understand a little better your glory, your presence, in the life of your people. And so as we open your word, as we turn our hearts to study it, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. So as I said, we, we have this. This is really two incidences that are a response to the loss of Israel of this battle. We have here a death and a birth. The ending of the life and the beginning of a life. We, we see this as this conclusion. It's a conclusion not only to this, this first section of Samuel that has been about the crisis in Israel and the crisis within Eli's own family, but it is also in many ways, as we will see in a little bit, a conclusion to the age of the judges. A conclusion, an ending to that period in Israel's history. See, at the beginning of Samuel, we had had another birth, right? We had the birth of Samuel. It's very nice. It's the answer to the questions right there in the name of the book. And the birth of Samuel, in many ways, right, is, is the beginning of a new thing for Israel. Samuel will be a, a prophet. But, but it will also be through Samuel and, and through Samuel's work that God will begin to bring an end to the crisis in Israel. So, so we have a birth in Samuel 1 that's, that's a beginning of something. And here, interestingly, we, we have a death that's a beginning of something and a birth that's an end of something. When Eli dies, we are told that he judged Israel for 40 years, the last person referred to as a judge. And in the, 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 the birth of Ichabod, Samuel's grandson, it really is the end of that error of the judges. Era of the judges. I, not error, not... not should enunciate better. So it's interesting as, as we look at this, as we begin to look, I, I love particularly in some of these books in the Bible, the books that, that is, as Christians, as Protestants, we, we sometimes refer to as the historical narratives. Although our, our, our Jewish friends would, would understand this to be a book of, of the prophets, but, but we talk about this as historical narrative. And it's always interesting to me the, the little fun details that get thrown in here. Right there in, in verse 12, at the very beginning, uh, we, we're not just told that a man comes, right? We're told that it's a Benjamite man who comes. It's an important, you know, an important little detail. 
But we're also told that, that, that his clothes were torn and there was dirt on his head. This is, this is a man who comes running to Shiloh. He doesn't saunter in. It's, it's not casual. He hasn't taken the time to put on fresh clothes and clean himself. I mean, this is a man who is fresh from the field of battle. You know, it's always interesting to me. There's a, there are these two sort of time periods in Westerns, right? They're like the early Westerns, the, the sort of like John Ford type Westerns, right? Where the hat never comes off. They've got clean laundry every day. Nobody ever needs a shave. There's no dirt on anything. And then in the 60s, right, you move into sort of like the grittier Westerns. You, you've got Magnificent Seven. You've got the, 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 the spaghetti Westerns of Sergio Leone and, and even eventually, you know, the Peckinpah Westerns of Wild Bunch. And, and in those movies, no one's ever seen a razor. Their hats are coming off all of the time and they're covered in dirt. Well, the, the truth is, it was probably a lot more the latter for many of those guys than it would have been the former. It's similar in, in war movies. If you go back and you watch some old, uh, you know, 1940s, 1950s war movies, they're very clean. But if you watch, as I re did recently rewatch for, I don't know, the 700 millionth time, the miniseries Band of Brothers, they make it... The, 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 the gritty reality of being in battle for months at a time visually sends you those signals. And so here you have a man, and we're given these details, and there's no real reason, right, for these particular details to be here other than to show us that he is fresh from the field of battle. And, and he comes, and, and Eli is, is where we've seen him several other times already in the narrative. Eli is sitting. He's waiting to hear. Now, Eli is, is an old man. He is 98. I think we can all acknowledge by any rubric that's old. We knew already in Samuel that he did not see well, and we see here that he has come to to not be able to see at all. So he can't see the runner come in. He can't see the crowds begin to gather around them. He can only hear the outcry when the news is first announced. And then he comes, and, and if you notice, he tells him four things. There are four things that the runner tells Eli. He tells them that Israel has fled from the Philistines. That's the first one. Then he tells them that in, in addition to Israel fleeing before the Philistines, there has been a great slaughter. That's the second. And then the third is that he tells them that his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, have been killed. Just as the man of God back in Samuel 2, 1 Samuel 2 said that they would die on the same day, and they have. And the text makes it very clear that Eli sort of takes all three of those pieces of news in stride. And in fact, we're, we're, also, we're, we're left sort of wondering, how can a father be so unaffected by the news of his son's deaths? Except if you go back and read what we've read already, 
we know that Samuel knows this day is coming and that he has to a certain extent resigned himself to the fact. But it is the fourth piece of news the fourth piece of news that really has the effect on Eli. And that fourth piece of news is not that we lost the battle, not that 30,000 have died, not that among those 30,000 are your two sons. The piece of news that literally sends Eli over backwards is that the ark of God has been lost. In fact, we were told that Eli, earlier we were told that Eli is in his chair sitting and waiting because he's anxious, not about the battle, he's anxious for the ark. Now ultimately, Eli is the one who is responsible for the ark. He is the priest. And so it is on his watch that the ark has been lost. We talked a little last week about the importance of the ark of the covenant to the Israelite people. That it was this, this physical thing that was the actual throne of God upon which God's physical presence rested among His people. It was a sign and a seal of the covenant that God had made with His people. And with the loss of the ark, it is a loss of that covenant relationship. Interestingly, we we come to understand as we read that, that Shiloh is never again a sinner of worship for God. The tabernacle is is not kept at Shiloh any longer after that. In fact, as we've read the text, we can see that that there's even a kind of semi-permanent structure that's that's grown up around the tabernacle. There there are posts and a porch and all of these things, and those, those things all are gone. Recent archaeology has shown that there was great destruction of the city of Shiloh around this time. That there had been worship there and then worship ceased. Very abruptly. It was, an, it was an end. It was a severing of relationship. Now the second, the second scene is not a, a death, but a, a birth. The birth of, of Eli's grandson. The birth of Ichabod. Now, it's interesting that we're told that the runner that comes to bring the message is a Benjamite. Remember the story of Benjamin. Benjamin is is another son who, when he is born, his mother dies, and with her last dying breath, names him. But unlike the birth of Benjamin, the birth of Ichabod is not a moment of hope. In fact, far from it. Even as she names Ichabod, she's saying something. 
We had a, a co-worker when we worked at Colonial Williamsburg who, who was obsessed with the meaning of names and would often get information and get information together and give you a whole printout stack of things about what your name means. Audrey received four or five of those stacks over the years, I think. <clears throat> you know, but for most of us, we named, we named Stacia James, Stacia James, not because those names have meaning in the name themselves, but they have meaning because of what they mean to us as names. Stacia James, named for his grandfather and for one of my heroes in the ministry, James. Wesley David, named Wesley David for his great-great-grandfather, John Wesley Prinzing. I tell you, man, I come from a long line of Methodists. I'm sorry. And for his other grandfather, for Audrey's dad, David. But we didn't look up the meaning of those names, you know, in, in, the, in, the, in one of those little name meaning books, right? They're family names. But the Israelites are, are keen on the meaning of names, and, and, and Ichabod is this weird construction. Ich is a, is a, a, a Hebrew phrase that's a negation. And Abad is glory. And so what we see when she names her son Ichabod, what she is saying is no glory. Glory no longer. The absence of glory. Now I just want to think, some of you might complain about the names that you were given by your parents. Have any of you had a name so bad that every time you walk down the street, everyone that you know would remember the lowest moment in life of our country? I mean, we don't have a whole lot of people running around named Pearl Harbor or Twin Towers. It's kind of humorous, but kind of not. I mean, I just want you to think about what this mother is saddling this child with in the name Ichabod. But that is how significant this moment is in the life of Israel. And note, as we, as we got to the end there here... She is not naming him Ichabod because his father has been killed. She is The writer is clear, she is clear that he has named Ichabod because the glory has left Israel because the ark has been captured. The glory has departed. This is a moment of national humiliation. This is a moment of, of existential humiliation. Who are the people of God if God's glory has departed them? But what we see also is we see between this proclamation that glory has departed and who it is that makes that proclamation, the wife of Phineas, upon the birth of Phineas's son, in the immediate aftermath of the death of his father, his uncle, his grandfather, and soon his mother. What we see is there is this intimate connection between the national humiliation that Israel has just suffered and the iniquity of Eli's sons. And, and, and the iniquity of Eli's sons and what it represents in the continued descent of Israel away from the covenant of God.
As we said, this was the end of the judges period. If you go back and you read the history of the people of Israel, even going back to the very beginning of Exodus, what has it been? The people of God have found themselves in trouble, and what do they do? They cry out to God, and God comes and saves them. It is this repeating pattern in the book of Judges that happens over and over and over again. The people fall away from God. They get themselves in trouble. They cry out to God. They renew the covenant with God. God comes. God saves. And the process starts all over again. But also, over the course of Judges, right, what we see is we see this descent. The people fall further and further. Go back, read the book of Judges sometime. Each story in the book of Judges is more horrifying than the story that comes before it. Judges ends, interestingly, with the slaughter of Benjamites because of the rape, murder, and dismemberment of a woman. Truly horrifying thing. The biblical scholar Phyllis Tribble, a North Carolina native. You've been around in Baptist life in North Carolina for a long time. You'll recognize the name Tribble. Her family has been involved in North Carolina Baptist life for years. She wrote a book a number of years ago called Texts of Terror. These, these truly terrifying texts. Judges is one of those. And so what we see in this incident is the final, last descent of God's people. They have fallen so far that when faced with the threat of the Philistines, they no longer even cry out to God. They no longer even turn to God. And so God is absent. See, what we've seen is in Eli's sons this, this symbol of the iniquity and the sin and the fallenness of all of Israel. We see that God's judgment is, is brought on the whole of the nation for the sins of her leaders. Because the people of Israel bear a responsibility for Phineas and Hophni, for their crimes, because the people have allowed those crimes to continue to occur. And so God's judgment is brought on the whole. I know of a church, not in this state, not one that any of y'all would know. I know of a church that over the years, they have continued to allow pastors to engage in abusive and sexually deviant behavior while staying and remaining in the pulpit. None of our business, they say. Probably does not shock you to know that congregation is dying. And within a few years will be dead. See, God's judgment has been visited. And God's judgment is a word that we don't like. We don't like this idea of judgment, right? Because when we hear judgment, what we think of is we think of a vindictive God. 
We think of a God who, who's, who's got this vengeful presence. But divine judgment is not vengeful presence of an angry God. Divine judgment is an imposed absence of a loving and protecting God. We, we, we see this dynamic. Let's turn to the New Testament. We see this dynamic play out in the New Testament. In, in Romans 1, we're talking about how, how God turns the people over to their sins and their passions as, as, as a form of judgment. You want nothing to do with me? Then fine, I will let you have nothing to do with me. In Revelation, we, we read about what, what happens because I believe it is both descriptive and also predictive, we, we read about what happens and what will happen when God removes his restraining hand. You want to think and complain about the violence and the horrors in our world now? Remember, God's restraining hand is still on us. Think of what will happen if and when he removes his hand. As, as we read earlier, as I mentioned multiple times already today, as Revelation tells us, God is holy, holy, holy. And he is repelled by sin. God cannot be in the presence of sin. It drives him away. And the loss of the presence of God is a loss of God's grace. God warns his people in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 28 and 29, as the people are renewing the covenant at the end of Deuteronomy, as they're getting ready to follow Joshua into the promised land, as they're getting ready to, to end their exile in the wilderness, their 40 years of wandering, God warns them. If you are not careful to obey all the words of this law, which are written in the scroll by fearing this glorious and awe-inspiring name, Yahweh your God, God will be glad to cause you to prosper and multiply you, but he will also be glad to cause you to perish and to destroy you. You will be ripped from the land. Later in, verse, in chapter 29, the end of chapter 29, therefore the Lord's anger burned against this land and he brought every curse written in this book on it. The Lord uprooted them from their land in his anger and rage and intense wrath and threw them into another land where they are today. God's judgment is the removal of God's presence and God's grace. This is what happens when people abandon his covenant, when they break it. See, here's the thing, brothers and sisters. We know something that Eli did not know. Phineas and Hophni did not know and that Phineas's wife did not know is that God's presence is not wrapped up in the Ark of the Covenant. 
that the true seal of the covenant between God and His people is not the ark and the objects that are contained in the ark. The seal of God's covenant, the presence of God in the world, is Jesus Christ. That is His presence. That is His grace and His mercy. That is what seals us to Him. The people felt as if the glory of the Lord had departed. But it had not departed because God did not want to be with His people. God so desires to be with His people that He sent His Son to live, die, and rise again for God's people. No, the glory of God had departed because the people had sent it out in their iniquity and in their unrighteousness. Because the holiness of God cannot abide sin, but sin cannot abide the holiness of God. And the people chose Phineas and Hophni and their iniquity over the holy, glorious presence of God. Let us not make the same mistake. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be hymn number 277. Take my life and let it be consecrated, my Lord, to Thee. Let this be our response. The ark was consecrated. The tabernacle was consecrated. The lives of Eli and his sons were who have been consecrated to God. And they rejected that consecration. Let us not reject it. Brothers and sisters, this morning, if you wish to make a profession of faith, unite with this fellowship, or simply come forward in prayer, this is an opportunity for you to do so. But even if you don't come forward, my prayer this morning is that as we sing together, that you will mean these words, that you will offer them to your Lord and your Savior as a prayer for him to take our lives and to consecrate them for himself. Please stand as you're willing and able. Thank you.